You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Larry Griffin. Griffin, better known as Larry, was the local postman in Kilmacthomas and Stradbally County, Waterford, a rural seaside area on Ireland's southern coast. He was from a large family from Barrack Street, Waterford City, and was born in 1881. Larry had served in the British Army in both India and in France during World War I before being injured and discharged. When he returned home, he started working at the post office as an employee of the Royal Mail. When Irish semi-independence came, his employment was transferred to the new Department of Posts and Telegraphs. Larry lived in an Ireland where British postage stamps were overprinted with Irish. By 1929, he was 48 years old, had married another Waterford native named Mary, and together they had three surviving adult children. There were around 700 people who lived in and around Stradbally at the time, though this number may have been higher around holidays as grown-up children returned home to visit their parents and so on. According to the book by Fakna O'Driscoll, The Missing Postman, on Christmas Day 1929, Larry Griffin called to his neighbour's house, the McGraths, and handed in two little presents for their baby daughters. Johnny McGrath was a neighbour and friend, but also a colleague who worked out of Kilmacthomas Post Office too. After that, Larry headed into the village to collect his deliveries for that day. Working on Christmas Day was par for the course for postmen at the time, but there were benefits to being out and about on the day. It was common practice to be generous with your postman at Christmas time, and Larry likely would have been looking forward to an extra few bob in his pockets by the end of the day, and a few drinks for the road in gratitude for his service. So that day, Larry got on his bike and made the seven-mile journey to deliver post in Stradbally. Larry had dinner in one house he called to with the post and was offered and took many a drink on his route that day. He finished up his work between six and half six. Mary Griffin expected him home in Kilmacthomas around nine that night. He'd said that when he returned, he was to give his son and daughters a few shillings to go off to the local dance. According to Faulkner O'Driscoll's book, Mary Griffin stayed up waiting for her husband to arrive home. By midnight, when the postmaster from Kilmacthomas called to the house to see if Larry had maybe just gone straight home from Stradbally, the two of them assured each other that Larry might have just opted to stay with a friend that night given the day that was in it and due to the fact that it had turned into a stormy, snowy night and Larry mightn't have fancied the 40-minute cycle in those conditions. But the following day, a local man was out on a morning walk along the stretch of road between Stradbally and Kilmacthomas. At around 20 past seven, he discovered Larry Griffin's bike and postbag on the road at Carrickbaruan, two miles from Stradbally. It was on a straight stretch of the road with ditches on either side and the man said that the bike looked as if it had been placed where he found it, a few feet from the right side of the road. 
Larry's fellow postman, Mr. McGrath, and Frank Cashin, accompanied by another man called Tony Cullinan, took a pony and trap from Kilmacthomas into Strad Valley, looking for Larry on St. Stephen's Day. Word quickly spread that Larry Griffin had not returned home. Thomas Cashin, the school principal and the only person with a car in Stradbally, offered to drive the guards around the area to search for the man. Search parties were organised, made up of both civic guards and many members of the public. The area known as the Glen Bog, which was marshy land that ran alongside the road where Larry's bike was found, was a focus of the search. It seemed most likely that Larry had walked into the fields away from his bike and had perhaps been injured or fallen into one of the many deep bog holes in the area. Gardee from neighbouring parishes were brought in to help with the search and local farmers were asked to search their land for any sign of the missing postman. The civic guards searched the area for further signs of Larry, but nothing turned up. He had disappeared. Superintendent Harry O'Mara soon arrived in Stradbally from Waterford to lead the investigation. He began by speaking to people who had been in and around the village that day to track Larry Griffin's movements and piece together his day. All the guards he spoke to said that they had not seen Larry Griffin leave Stradbally on Christmas Day. Garda Frawley and Garda Cullinan told O'Mara that they had spent the evening on patrol out in nearby Bunmatton. Ned DeLay told O'Mara that he'd heard Larry Griffin was to meet Larry O'Brien on the road between Stradbally and the nearby crossroads. They all said that Griffin, when they had seen him, was sober. O'Mara quickly learned that Larry Griffin often stopped at the Whelan's public house for his dinner when he was out delivering post, and O'Mara was told that he had dropped in the post on Christmas Day. Whelan's pub was taken over by Patrick Whelan from his father in 1895. He and his wife Bridget had six children. Their eldest daughter had left Ireland to take up a career in nursing in England. The other five lived with them, three boys and two girls. The eldest boy, James, who was 20 at the time, helped his father out in the shop. Whelan also had a 40-acre farm with dairy cattle on it, and other family would help run that and deliver milk to the locality. The girls, Sissy and Nora, were 19 and 18, and the younger boys were 16 and 12. O'Mara learned that Larry had called at Whelan's at around three to drop off the post and parcels, but he was told he never came in. It was also the postman's normal routine to call by the Convent of Mercy at Stradbally on his way back to the post office in Kilmacthomas to collect their post, which would be hung on the convent gate but Larry hadn't collected the post Christmas Day. Nor had he stopped at Mrs. Walsh's cottage, known as the Halfway House, which was on the Stradbally Kilmec Thomas Road and where post was often left for collection. Mr. Griffin would always call in on his way to and from Stradbally to collect that post, but not on Christmas Day. The house was only 200 yards or so further down the road from where Larry's bike had been discovered. No one had seen the bike on the road between half six on Christmas Day and the following morning. It wasn't there when a young man had passed that way at around 4am. And curiously, the bike was dry when it was found, but it had rained heavily overnight. By the 28th of December, reports were circulating in local and national papers that Larry Griffin, the postman, had gone missing. 
On the 29th of December, O'Mara had a number of local men, mainly laborers, brought into the local barracks for questioning. They had been in the local hall or club on Christmas evening, but they all said that they hadn't seen Griffin or his bike. According to a Driscoll writing in The Missing Postman, on the 6th of January, a local priest, Father O'Shea, told Chief Superintendent O'Mara that, quote, the Gardaí in Stradbally were concealing what occurred, end quote, and that the superintendent should question them very closely. But before he did that, he should question a young lad named Power, who had said that he'd seen Griffin on the night of his disappearance. The following day, senior Gardaí from Dungarvan and Tremor joined O'Mara to question 16-year-old John Power. He told the Gardaí that he had seen Larry Griffin on Christmas Day at about half six in the evening as he stood at the corner outside Whelan's Hotel and Bar. Griffin had been with someone else. It was Garda Ned DeLay. The other men who were present on the street corner with the teenager confirmed that they'd seen this too. And they also confirmed something else John Power had said, that Griffin was visibly and undeniably drunk. When 29-year-old Garda DeLay was questioned, he told O'Mara and the others that he had been with Griffin around that time, but he'd said nothing before as he didn't think it was important. He also said Larry Griffin hadn't been drunk. He walked as far as the corner with Griffin and had returned back to Whelan's. There he met Sissy, the Whelan's 19-year-old daughter, whom he was courting, and he said then that they went off to Stradbally Cove together not returning to the village until around 10pm. But none of the people who had been in the square that evening could recall seeing DeLay return, or him meeting Sissy. One thing everyone could agree on is that there was no drinking going on in Whelan's. The law had been changed two years previously, which outlawed alcohol being served on Christmas Day and on Good Friday in pubs. No one in Stradbally was prepared to say that anyone had been in the bar that night. The sergeant, Cullinan, even said he'd been into Whelan's on two occasions that night to make sure no one was drinking on the premises, but he said he'd only found members of the Whelan family. Strangely, Mrs Whelan, Bridget, told the guardie that Cullinan had raided the place only the once. According to a programme produced on Griffin's disappearance by RTE called CSI, there was drinking going on not only in Whelan's, but in the local Garda station. This was something that DeLay admitted to, having had wine with his dinner there. But the other Gardaí strenuously denied this. No one would admit to being in Whelan's hotel and bar drinking that night, and the official records kept in the Garda station at Stradbally were a total mess. The stories were entirely inconsistent with one another, so much so that basically all of the statements given by the local guardie had to be dismissed as unreliable. According to Fakno O'Driscoll, within weeks of Larry Griffin's disappearance, all the local Stradbally guards would find themselves transferred to new postings. A number of locals were also interviewed in the hopes that they would be able to shed some light on what had happened in Stradbally that evening, and whatever it was that was now strongly suspected had happened in Whelan's pub. On the 23rd of January, a statement was taken from Jim Fitzgerald, which described the events of the 25th of December in Whelan's Bar. But the contents of the statement and the manner in which it was taken 
would be something that would be a major bone of contention in the coming weeks. Fitzgerald had signed the statement that day, returned home to the cottage he shared with Thomas Corbett and his young wife, and then Fitzgerald disappeared from the area altogether. The Corbetts were also questioned, and they too left Stradbally, only returning to the cottage to collect some clothing in the dead of night. Whatever the truth of the statement, or the circumstances of his quick exit from the community, Fitzgerald's statement would direct the course of the rest of the investigation into the disappearance of Larry Griffin. There were a number of searches of Whelan's hotel and home over those few days. The stove was taken, and the floorboards were taken up. Various items of clothing with what looked to be bloodstains were taken. Much was made of the findings of subsequent searches, all these items of clothing with stains on them. The one local pointed out that there was perhaps an all-too-innocent reason for these items being there, considering that there were two teenage girls living in the house. The headmaster, Tom Cashin, also had his car looked at, and bloodstains were reportedly found in the doorwell of that vehicle. Publican and farmer Patrick Whelan was asked to the barracks on the 25th of January, and was at that point arrested for murder and charged also with conspiracy. Bridget, Nora and James Whelan were arrested three days later, on the following Monday. With each subsequent search of the Whelan's home and business, more items with staining were found, and this was taken as vindication for the arrests. By the 29th of January, there were widespread searches for the body of Larry Griffin, who was by this stage presumed to have died. The searches of the boggy areas continued, and in addition, local disused mines were searched, as the police followed lines of inquiry arising from the statements made by local people, and in particular, of Jim Fitzgerald. The mine at Ballinasisla was searched even as the darkness fell. What was described as a 1,000 candle power lamp was used to try and illuminate it near to 500 feet below ground level. A good distance further down the mine, there was water at the bottom, and it was impossible to determine exactly how deep that water might be. The water was not stagnant, though, and this indicated that there were further caves that were connected to the mine. Police thought it was possible that Larry Griffin's body might have found itself pulled away out of the shaft and elsewhere. The carcass of a calf was brought up from Balanisisla, and another animal carcass was seen floating in the water below. Mrs. Power, who lived in the house nearest Balanisisla mine, had initially said that she'd heard a car late at night in the early hours of St. Stephen's Day, between half-past midnight and 1am, but later she said it might have been the next day when she'd heard it instead. For the next number of days, the searches of the mine would be hampered by heavy rainfall, and work stopped and started repeatedly. Deputy Commissioner Coogan told the Irish Independent of the difficulties in the investigation, saying, quote, In this area, the natural reticence of the Irish countrymen was so strong that it was exceedingly difficult to get information. End quote. He went on in a similar vein when giving a report to General Ono Duffy, the Garda Commissioner, saying, quote, The whole countryside is a conspiracy of silence. It is almost impossible to get any useful information. 
a number of those concerned have been pushed very far, but without effect. End quote. The Evening Herald reported on the 1st of February that its correspondent would believe that nearly everyone in the Stradbally area had by that point been questioned about their whereabouts on the Christmas day just gone and their knowledge, if any, of what had become of their local postman. Some people, the reporter revealed, had been questioned a number of times. By that stage, Garda John O'Sullivan had made a new statement outlining what he now said had occurred on that day. Garda O'Sullivan recalled a day full of drinking, beginning as early as 10am. The drinking was both within and without the barracks. He recalled having visited both bars in the village, Riley's and Whelan's. In the afternoon, he said he'd fallen asleep and only woke up at half-twelve in the middle of the night when Garda DeLay and Garda Murphy came back into the barracks. This totally contradicted his previous statements and the entries he had made into the official Garda logbook in the station that day. The Garda that had been stationed in Stradbally, though given new positions, were all recalled back to Dublin to face questioning in relation to their knowledge of the events of Christmas Day, in light of the information that had come to light in various statements. Six weeks after Larry Griffin was last seen alive on the 8th of February, ten people were brought before the Waterford District Court for preliminary hearings while facing charges in relation to his disappearance. They were Thomas Cashin, the headmaster from Stradbally, Edmund Morrissey, a labourer, Patrick Whelan, the hotel and bar owner, his wife Bridget, one of their sons and a daughter, George Cummins, a farmer of Carragher Hill, Patrick Cunningham, a farmer of Carrigan and Ned DeLay and William Murphy, both members of the Civic Guard who were stationed at Stradbally the previous Christmas at the time of the disappearance. A large crowd gathered at the courthouse in Waterford City for their appearance, and friends and supporters cheered them as they arrived. All were charged with the murder of the missing postman, Larry Griffin. Cashin and Morrissey were charged with disposing of the body of Larry Griffin with the intent to pervert or obstruct a coroner's inquest. The other eight were also charged with conspiracy to obstruct a coroner's inquest. Counsel for the state, Mr Finlay, told the court that he was in a position to put facts before the court that might go some way to dispel the mystery that had surrounded the case. These facts were garnered primarily from the state's key witness, Jim Fitzgerald. Mr. Finlay said that on Christmas Day, between 7 and 8 p.m., Larry Griffin had gone to a pub in Stradbally. The pub, Whelan's, had been opened up for a private drinking session after Sergeant Cullinan, the officer in charge of the local police station, was known to have left the area. By nine o'clock, there was a good gang of people in the premises, mainly made up of prominent people in the local community one of whom was Larry Griffin. He had quite a bit of drink taken and dropped some money from the pocket of his postman's uniform. The money was apparently picked up by Mr Morrissey and Griffin got annoyed. A fight broke out and Mr Cashin hit Larry while Morrissey simultaneously pushed him. Finlay said that as a result of these two blows, Larry Griffin had fallen forward onto his face and hands, hitting his head off the iron stove in the bar. Then he'd stopped moving. Whelan, the publican, had then come into the room, telling the others that they'd killed a man in his house. 
Cashin and Morrissey were alleged to have immediately gone about coming up with a plan to hide Griffin's body in order to stop blame for his death being attached to Whelan and his pub. No one called a doctor or a priest. Cashin got his car and Mrs. Whelan came into the room with a blanket and wrapped Larry's body up. Finlay shockingly alleged that Griffin was still breathing at this point, but said that nevertheless his body was wrapped up. There was a visible wound to the centre of his forehead, but nothing more. Conversation took place between some of the men that they might bring Griffin to kill Thomas and put him over the bridge there, or put him down one of the mines in Tankardstown. The men carried him out the back gateway and put him into the back of Cashin's car, who had then driven away. Finlay alleged that Ned DeLay and William Murphy, the two guardie, were not at the pub at the time of Griffin's injury, but arrived shortly after and had helped to carry him out, and they were the ones who made the suggestion that Griffin's bike might be brought away and placed on the chapel road, to try and lead people to the conclusion that Griffin had cycled off that evening drunk and he'd come to some injury on his way home. Then, finally, Jim Fitzgerald appeared as witness for the state and Mr. Finlay began to take him through his statement, which Finlay had by that point thoroughly outlined. Fitzgerald told the court he lived about a mile from Stradbally in a cottage where Thomas Colbert and his wife also lodged. Fitzgerald had gone to Mass on Christmas morning at 11 and came home for his Christmas dinner. He said he was at home until tea time, at which point he left and went to Stradbally with Mr. Colbert and Mr. Cunningham. They met up with Jim Murphy and made their way towards Whelan's. There they stood outside and had a bottle of stout each. Then they headed to the nearby Riley's pub and had another drink before heading to the town hall or the club. The men had gone towards home when they finished there, but stopped for a while outside Whelan's at the corner. They saw two guards walk by with two bicycles. Fitzgerald admitted that he had gone into Whelan's again then. But at this point in Fitzgerald's deposition, Mr. Finley for the state was granted permission to treat Fitzgerald as a hostile witness, despite objections made by various counsel for the accused group, as Fitzgerald seems set to deny that his earlier statement, upon which the entire case was based, had been true. The request was granted, and Fitzgerald went on to admit that he had signed the statement, but now he denied that he had gone into the kitchen at Whelan's and had seen Mrs. Whelan and Ms. Hannigan there. He denied having heard singing in the room, or having heard Mrs. Whelan hushing people singing so that they wouldn't be heard in the street. Fitzgerald said now he wasn't sure about the statement he had made, saying that he had seen Griffin go into the toilets with his postman's cap and bag on his back. He denied that Pat Whelan was in the bar and that money had fallen out of Griffin's pocket and that Morrissey had picked it up and used it to buy more pints. Then Fitzgerald said that he hadn't been in Whelan's at all that night. The judge intervened, asking why Fitzgerald would have signed a statement on the 23rd of January if there was no truth to it. Fitzgerald said the statement had been forced out of him. He now said he had made up a lot of it. All the parts about seeing Griffin, he said, were false. The witness went on to say he didn't know who was in the house, he hadn't heard piano or singing, and he'd only taken a drink there outside the front of the building. Fitzgerald admitted that he had mentioned all those names during his statement to the police and said that he knew what the statement was being taken in relation to. 
Fitzgerald then told the court that he had been kept at the barracks at Lady Lane in Waterford for the past two weeks, and that he had preferred to be there rather than at home, though he also added he hadn't been allowed to leave the barracks either. Fitzgerald would not tell the court why it was that he preferred to be in the barracks, and in the end Mr Finlay asked that Fitzgerald be remanded in custody for another week. During the course of his research, Fachna O'Driscoll discovered that Tom Corbett, the man who had gone into Stradbally with Fitzgerald that Christmas day, had given a statement around the same time as Fitzgerald, which contradicted Fitzgerald's story. Corbett said that the two had gone into the village and had gone to enter Whelan's pub from the back entrance, but Corbett said that they'd found the back door was locked. Eventually, they'd given up trying to get drink there and had left. Counsel appearing on behalf of a number of the accused at this preliminary hearing asked that the charges would be dismissed as the state did not have enough evidence to prove involvement in Griffin's disappearance as the witness presented would not swear that the people had been there. This request was denied. Then bail was asked for, saying that the matter had gone on for six weeks and though their clients were anxious to answer evidence presented by the state, there was nothing to answer thus far. There was no evidence and no body had been found but the judge pointed out it had not been six weeks since the arrests of the ten people. So this, again, was denied and all of the accused were remanded in custody. On Thursday the 13th of February, all of the areas involved in the search for Larry Griffin were gone over by an official engineer of the Gardee. Measurements and photographs were taken of various sites, including Whelan's Hotel, the place where the bike was found, and the mine at Ballinasisla. In addition, Ned Morrissey, the man who was accused of having pushed Larry, was the local gravedigger. He was also a farm labourer who had lived and worked for a period of time with and for the Whelans. Quietly, senior investigators applied for and were granted exhumation orders, and they began to open the graves of those who had recently died in and around Stradbally to see if Larry's body had been secreted in a fresh grave there. The ten accused were before the district court again on the 14th of February. When proceedings in the case began at 20 past 11, the judge, Mr. F.J. McCabe, warned that he would not tolerate noise or disruption from the large crowd that had gathered to hear the proceedings. The first witness of this preliminary hearing was Thomas Cullinan, a labourer from Kilmac-Thomas. He told the court that on St. Stephen's Day, the 26th of December, he had been with Larry's neighbour, Mr McGrath, and Frank Cashin, and they had all searched for Larry Griffin. They'd gone into Stradbally and into Whelan's pub. Patrick Whelan, the defendant and publican, had come to the door and they'd spoken. Cullinan had asked Whelan if he knew anything about where Larry Griffin might be. Whelan had told the men that he'd tried to persuade Larry to stay on in the pub on Christmas night, but Larry wouldn't agree to stay. The three men out searching for Larry had also called into a house owned by the Powers on the way to Stradbally looking for Larry's bicycle. The back wheel of the bike was slack or flat and the chain was off, but otherwise it was in perfect working order. There was no evidence of an accident. On the carrier was a bag, an oilcloth and a pair of waterproof trousers, all of which were standard issue from the post office. 
Cullinan took the bike, fixed it, and rode it back to kill MacThomas. Cullinan also participated in a search for Griffin on the 27th of December and heard James Whelan say that one of the girls had gone off up the road with Larry Griffin that night. Francis Cashin was next on the stand. He was a postman in Kilmac Thomas and said he had searched with Power and McGrath for Larry Griffin in Stradbally on the 27th. He recalled a conversation with Paddy Whelan at the pub and said he'd remarked to the man, I wonder what's happened to Larry, and Whelan had responded that Larry had gone off on the booze. Cashin said he also overheard Whelan say that he'd wanted to put Larry up for the night, but that Larry had refused. Then Cashin confirmed that he'd seen Griffin's bike at Powers Cottage too, and its condition. A young man named John Power, who lived near Stradbally, recalled that on Christmas Day at around 3pm he'd headed into the old empty RIC barracks, where a number of local boys had gathered. At half four he went to Riley's pub and saw Nora Whelan across the way at Whelan's hotel, standing with guard Murphy, who was in uniform. At half six, John Power said he went over to Whelan's and saw a number of men standing on the street corner. He saw Larry Griffin, he said, talking to guard Frawley, who lived three doors down from the Whelan's hotel over the post office, and shortly after, he also saw guard Delay outside Whelan's. The young lad told the court that he had seen guard Delay walking with Griffin and his bike heading towards Whelan's back gate. Griffin was in a bad way. He was sick and vomiting. The following day, St. Stephen's Day, John Power was back in Whelan's. There were some Wren boys entertaining and singing in the bar, but Gardelay yelled at them to stop. Nora Whelan, one of the publican's daughters and one of the defendants in the case, said something to the effect that the guard was right, that she'd forgotten about poor Larry Griffin being missing. Later in the evening, John saw Guard Delay leave Wheelands and go toward Thomas Cashin's house, and then Cashin and Delay drove off together, headed towards the Chapel Road in Cashin's car. They returned at about half seven, and Delay went back into Wheelands. Shortly after, he'd seen Delay in John Rowe's car, which pulled around to the back gate of Wheelands, and then Sissy Whelan got in. Again, the vehicle headed in the direction of Chapel Road. John Power said that he'd left Stradbally at about half eight and that at this point John Rowe's car had not returned. Then the teenager recalled having been questioned at the barracks on the 27th and the fact that James Whelan had asked him about what had gone on during this questioning the following day. Detective Joseph Gantley was next to take the stand and he said he'd gone to Thomas Cashin's house on the 24th of January and taken a pair of brown trousers which were produced for the court. Next, Detective Officer O'Rourke said that he'd found a piece of cloth on the 28th of January on top of a cupboard in Nora Whelan's room and had taken possession of it. Then, Detective Officer James Driscoll presented a pair of grey trousers he had taken from Edward Morrissey's house on the 24th of January, along with a piece of flannelette, a blanket and a lady's stocking, which had been found in Patrick and Bridget Whelan's bedroom and a shirt that he'd got from a drawer in Nora Whelan's bedroom. All of those articles had been delivered to Dr John McGrath in Dublin, a pathologist and a lecturer in medical jurisprudence who appeared on the stand next. The doctor had found a small blood stain on the outside of one leg of the brown trousers, which tested positive as human blood. 
The dark grey trousers also had signs of blood on them, but the trousers were too dirty to take samples from to confirm it as human blood. The flannelette had tested positive for human blood. It had had a large stain on it, as did the stockings, which were described as having a large stain from the heel nearly to its top. Blood stains were also on the shirt and the piece of cloth taken from on top of Nora Whelan's closet. The stove, stool and floorboards taken from Whelan's had all tested negative for traces of blood. The defence counsels again stated for the record that it was their assertion that the state had yet to produce evidence which would indicate the guilt of their clients. Mr J. Connolly also made a declaration of innocence on their behalf, saying, quote, These people declare that they are innocent and that they had nothing whatever to do with the disappearance of this postman. They are prepared to meet this charge anywhere and to seek the first opportunity to meet it, and they don't want to shirk anything. Unless my friend Mr. Finlay is in a position to give further evidence than he has given you now, the matter is entirely in your discretion, but I would like to protest strongly against keeping them in custody. Despite this, the ten were remanded once more in custody for a further week. Meanwhile, the searches for the missing postman's body continued. The mine at Ballinasisla was examined once more, but the only result was a quote, coal sack full of stones. The gossip pages of the Waterford Standard declared that the search operation was amateurish in its methods and said it would be a waste of public money and would further make it impossible to recover Mr. Griffin's body should he actually be at the bottom of the shaft. The mine was some 600 foot deep and had been disused for over 70 years by that point. The Evening Herald described the search across the rugged area of County Waterford, saying that the Civic Guard, with the help of members of the public, had scoured every square yard in the environs of Strad Valley. People began to visit the Ballinasisla area out of curiosity while the Garda investigation into Larry Griffin's disappearance continued. On Saturday the 15th of February, Strad Valley Cove and its beach had been dug out looking for clues, but nothing was found. According to Faulkner O'Driscoll, Patrick Whelan was encouraging the notion that the searches had not been carried out properly. Whelan had even written a letter to Mary Griffin saying as much and saying that he was organising his own search party of the Glen Bog. People combed through the marshy area once again, burning grasses to increase visibility, but again there was nothing found. On Thursday the 20th of February at about half past four, a discovery was made at the mineshaft at Ballinasisla, a large piece of black cloth which had been lifted by a grab dredger. It was identified as the front portion of a man's waistcoat. Around the same time, the Civic Guard changed tack and focused their search in the next few days on the area around Strad Valley and the fields that surrounded it. Through heavy rain, guards searched the fields with the belief that Lawrence Griffin had been buried somewhere within a mile of the village where he was last seen. Forty guards split into teams and they carried out thorough searches of quadrants. As they moved through the countryside, they used long iron rods to probe the earth, feeling for anything unusual which might indicate that the soil had been disturbed or that there was something buried beneath their feet. They also concentrated on a field behind the schoolhouse in Strad Valley, which had recently been ploughed and levelled. When the ten accused appeared again in court on Friday the 21st of February, it was noted by the reporters present 
that the defendant's time in custody was beginning to get wearing in terms of their physical appearance. They were solemn and strange-looking. Sergeant Thomas H. Elwin was called to the stand first that day to give testimony in relation to the maps of the villages and townlands involved in the case, from the spot where the bike was found on the road to the mine located down a path just before where one would reach the bridge leading into Bunmatton, coming from Kilmac-Thomas, and other shafts near to the road on the way to Ballinasisla. A map of Stradbally was produced, and so was the map depicting the layout of Whelan's Hotel and Bar. Bridget Frawley, the wife of Guard Frawley, was called on then, and she told the court that she had called her husband in for his tea on Christmas Day at around six o'clock. He had arrived with Guard Delay with him, who was in civilian clothes. Shortly after, Mrs. Frawley recalled that Larry Griffin had come into the house and that he had been quite drunk. She offered and then gave him a small glass of whiskey. Both Gardy declined the offer. They all stayed another 15 minutes or so. It was Larry Griffin's habit to keep his bike in the Frawley house when he was in Stradbally, and this was what had brought him there that evening too. Garda Frawley was gone only about 15 minutes with the other two men, she said. Her husband was in and out of the house a few times that evening, but returned at about half ten with Sergeant Cullinan. Bridget further said that on a day in January, Guard Delay had called to the house when her husband was sick, and as she saw him to the door, she said he told her not to tell anyone that she had seen Larry Griffin on Christmas Day with him, but also said it was nothing for her to worry about. A Sergeant Murphy deposed that he had called to Thomas Cashin's house on the morning of the 24th of January and had informed Cashin that he was wanted at the barracks. He was sent up to get dressed in the presence of the sergeant and the officer overheard a conversation between Cashin and his wife. Cashin told her that he was wanted at the barracks and she asked, what for? Cashin said he didn't know and then his wife asked, on far more Marov, the big man who died. Then James Carroll told the court that he had been in the club for a number of hours on Christmas evening and had seen a number of the defendants there. When he left at a quarter past eleven, some of them were still there. Patrick Power recalled having been in Stradbally on Christmas evening and said he saw Larry Griffin, Guard Delay and Guard Frawley outside Frawley's house. They went in and out of Whelan's hotel and then he saw Delay and Griffin walk off together with Delay pushing Griffin's bike in the direction of Chapel Road. The witness recalled that Griffin was unwell as he walked and that he had his arms around the guard to support himself. Guard John Joseph Doddy described for the court how he and Detective Officer O'Driscoll had removed a stove from Whelan's shop. He was also asked to look for an iron bar, and had asked Nora Whelan about it when he ran into her in the yard out back. Her response, according to the guard, was, quote, there are no bloodstains on it, end quote. The remark had come out of nowhere, he told the court. After a break for lunch, the court heard from Sergeant Mulcahy of Tremor, who interviewed the defendant Patrick Whelan in Stradbally on the 24th of January. Mr. Whelan told the sergeant that he hadn't seen Larry Griffin at all that day, though he thought that the man had called with the post that afternoon, but Whelan insisted that he hadn't seen Larry himself. Patrick Whelan had signed a statement outlining all of that after being cautioned of his rights. That was all that the state had to present to the court for that week. 
Mr. Finlay told the judge that he intended that his next appearance before the court would be the last in this set of proceedings, and so he asked that the defendants be remanded in custody for one more week in order for the preliminary hearings to be disposed of. This was agreed to by the judge, and no applications for bail were made, as Finlay was described as having taken the wind out of the defence's sails. An application might have seemed unreasonable in the circumstances. By Saturday the 1st of March 1930, it was reported that the operation at the mine had been suspended some days before, after the sudden recall of the inspector who had taken the lead on that aspect of the investigation. He was to be replaced by Superintendent James Hunt from Galway. That said, according to the local papers, it had seemed to onlookers that if Griffin's body was indeed in any of the mine shafts, it likely would have been found swiftly during the dredging operation. On the same day, the court met again in the matter. No new evidence was produced by the prosecution, but Mr. Finlay told the court that the civic guard believed that they were close to finding Larry Griffin's body. A Garda superintendent took to the stand to confirm that he was in the possession of certain new information and said that inquiries were being pursued on the basis of these. The ten were remanded in custody for a further week. But at the next court appearance on the 7th of March, the state informed the judge that those inquiries had led to naught and the charges were being withdrawn. There was again a large crowd present that day and friends and supporters of the ten whooped and cheered in delight as it was announced that they would all finally be released. In May of 1930, a source in Waterford spoke to the correspondent for the Evening Herald in Dublin and said that the civic guard still seemed confident that Larry Griffin's body would be recovered and that charges would be once again laid against an individual or individuals in the case. Rumours abounded that Larry's body had been moved three times since his death, frustrating the Garda efforts to recover him. At a confirmation ceremony at Ballylanine, near to Stradbally, the Most Reverend Dr. Hackett, Bishop of Waterford, spoke for the first time in relation to the mystery of the missing postman. Addressing the congregation, he said, quote, The Stradbally mystery is spoke of in far-off Australia. Why mystery? There should be no mystery about it. I have information that should satisfy any man of intelligence that drink was distributed freely in Stradbally on Christmas Day and also on Christmas night. That house or by whom I will not say. Such shameful celebration of Christmas I denounce. It is disgraceful and unworthy of any Catholic community. End quote. He went on to appeal for anyone who knew what had happened to Larry to come forward and prayed that God might shed light on what had gone on. In the same month, news broke that Thomas Corbett, the labourer who lived with the witness Fitzgerald, was suing the guards involved in his questioning. They were James O'Driscoll, Thomas O'Rourke, Joseph Gantley and Patrick McNamara. Mr Corbett alleged that during his questioning in relation to Griffin's disappearance, he'd been assaulted and threatened by the guards. He'd been asked to the barracks in Stradbally and was hit during his questioning there, with the detectives and officers threatening him to try and get him to give certain information. 
Later, he was taken by car to the coast and assaulted again and threatened that he'd be thrown over a cliff if he didn't cooperate. The officers all denied that anything of the sort had happened. Corbett said in court that he was taken from his home in the middle of the night. He was asked to go down to the barracks where he was questioned for two hours and repeatedly beaten and threatened. The guards were annoyed when Corbett refused to say that he had been at Whelan's public house and seen someone tie a weight to Larry Griffin's body. They put him in the car and then drove him towards Bunmatten. But he refused to say anything as he wasn't there that night and had seen no such thing. He alleged that the guards had then threatened to throw him down the same mineshaft Larry had ended up in if he didn't tell them what they wanted. Corbett said they'd offered him £150 to say what they wanted, but he'd refused, saying he would take no amount of money to lie like that. Corbett also described how a gun was put to his head and then to his chest. When he went back in the car, he told the guards he just wanted to go home, and one of them gave him two shillings to compensate him for being out all night and not being able to go to work the following day adding not to say a word about what had happened that night, and that if he did, he'd be sorry. The guards responded to this allegation, confirming that Corbett had been asked to the barracks. They said there was no intention to detain him, nor was there any conspiracy against him. They denied all threats and assaults and said that they had only brought Corbett there to question him about any knowledge he might have had in connection to Larry Griffin. Later that month, an action was taken by the members of the Whelan family, Patrick, James, Bridget, Sissy and Nora, against Waterford News Limited. They complained specifically about an account that had been printed in the Waterford Evening News regarding the injuries said to have been sustained by Larry Griffin while he was in Whelan's pub. After the case against them was dismissed in March and the Whelans were released, they said their formerly friendly neighbours ignored them and no longer frequented their shop. They said visitors who came to the area in the summer had begun to drop into the pub out of curiosity, but would not enter the pub as customers, further degrading the Whelan's reputation and impacting their family business. The paper said there was no liable printed. The Whelan's were awarded a total of £1,740 in damages in that case. They also took an action against the Cork Examiner newspaper in the same month relating to a similar article that was published regarding Larry Griffin's case. Local people told the court in that case that people in Stradbally thought, as a result of the press coverage, that the Whelans were responsible for Larry Griffin's murder and the hiding of his body. The paper argued that the article had done nothing more than relate what had gone on in the district court, which had garnered much interest by the general public. On top of that, lawyers for the publication pointed out that the article had stated that the Whelans were in a separate part of the house when Larry had died, and so, though they'd all been charged with murder, it had been made quite clear that the evidence that was had at that point did not implicate them directly in that way. Further, they argued, the damages that had been awarded in the previous case should be taken into account if the jury were to try and assess any financial loss to the Whelans on the basis of the article, adding that the article in the Cork Examiner was just one of many on the topic at the time. In response, the Whelans argued that the article, which had appeared on the 6th of February, the day before Jim Fitzgerald spoke in court, had gone further than was allowed in the reporting of the goings-on in court. The article, they said, had given the impression that the Whelans were intimately involved in Griffin's death 
that it had occurred in their house while they were present and that they had been involved in the actions taken to conceal his death. The jury agreed with them, saying the piece had in fact published the innuendo alleged. Patrick Whelan was awarded £700. Bridget got 350 James 250 Nora 220 and Sissy received £220 in damages. On the 2nd of December 1930, Thomas Corbett's case against the four guards was heard before Mr Justice Hanna at the High Court in Dublin. Corbett's accusations were met with cross-examination by counsel for the defendants. He was grilled regarding his interactions with the civic guards after the ordeal he had described, and he was asked if he had played football and even borrowed a ball from the barracks after these alleged assaults during questioning. Corbett denied this. In the end, Tommy Corbett was awarded £500 in damages plus costs in the same amount. According to Faulkner O'Driscoll, working off the Garda files from the late 1930s, police were paying close attention to negotiations regarding a settlement in lieu of the money that had been awarded to Tommy Corbett. The guards had found themselves in a position of being unable to pay him as they no longer had jobs. But Tommy wanted his money and so an arrangement had to be come to. People in Stradbally seemed to be nervous that part of the settlement between them might include Corbett talking about what had truly happened that Christmas night. In the end, Corbett's solicitor bought out the award from him so that he could ensure to pursue the guardie for his costs. With this arrangement went any worry that Corbett might elaborate regarding the events of Christmas night 1929. Jim Fitzgerald briefly returned to Stradbally after his release from police custody, before moving from the area permanently with the help of the head investigator in the case. According to Faulkner O'Driscoll, despite having gone back on his initial statement, when he returned to Stradbally, he could find no work and was in fear of the influential people in town who he'd named in his initial statement to Gardee. Superintendent James Hunt, who had taken over the investigation from O'Mara, arranged work and housing for Fitzgerald on a farm in Galway. O'Driscoll reports in his book, The Missing Postman, the conversations that passed between Jim Fitzgerald and Superintendent Hunt when Fitzgerald was deposited in his new home in Galway. His story had changed once more, and according to Hunt, Fitzgerald said what had truly happened was that he had been in Whelan's that night, had had a drink there. He'd seen Gardelay with Larry Griffin near to 8pm. At 9, he and a few others went to Riley's pub and after a drink there, he headed to the hall to play cards. After a few hours there, he went home. A few days later, Mr Corbett had told him what became of Larry Griffin and he'd got the story from Patrick Cunningham, who had gone back to Whelan's bar later that evening. Cunningham had said there had been a row and Larry had been hurt sometime between 11 and half past. Fitzgerald had put together what had become of Larry's body from various other sources, but he said he'd made up the bit about Larry being wrapped in a blanket. Fitzgerald's story had been what he believed to be the truth, but it hadn't been his story to tell. In March of 1931, Larry Griffin's disappearance was brought up in the doll by local Waterford TDs. They were looking to have a tribunal of inquiry set up to settle the matter and try and dispel some of the disquiet still present in the communities around Stradbally. 
but the notion was rejected, with the Minister for Justice saying it was unlikely a tribunal would be better able to get the truth of the matter than the Garda investigation, which had occurred immediately after Larry Griffin's disappearance. If people wouldn't come forward with what they knew, the Garda could do little more. In February of 2009, the Irish Language Division of RTE began the development of the series which would look at notorious Irish crimes. Fakna O'Driscoll and Dr. Tyg Dushlane of NUI Maynooth were brought on to investigate the case of Larry Murphy. Quickly, it became clear that the documents that they had managed to find were part of a larger Garda file kept on the case, and that the full file had not been made available to the public or even the surviving members of Larry Griffin's family. But applications to review the full files by both researchers and the family were denied. However, as the air date for the programme approached, the Garda seemed to change their mind. It was announced that the file would indeed be made available to the public at the Garda Museum on the very morning that the programme was to be aired. Faulkner O'Driscoll recalled that it was a short-lived feeling of victory. He had immediately sought access to the file and was handed over a small ream of papers that was clearly not the full investigative file. He had personally reviewed official documents that weren't included in it. After a few letters back and forth, he was eventually presented with ten full files of documents, amounting to what he said was somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 pages, and a photo album. He was assured that this was it, though. There was no physical evidence remaining in the case nor any record of what had become of it. In his book, The Missing Postman, Fakna O'Driscoll reconstructs what he thinks was the most likely chain of events in Stradbally that Christmas night, based on the full Garda file. But of course, you'll have to read his book to find that out. It's linked in the show notes. No court ever decided on what exactly had happened. Larry Griffin's bicycle sat in the Garda station in Stradbally and became a reminder of the failure of the force and his absence in the community. In 1943, the postmaster of Kilmacthomas retrieved it on the instructions from his superiors. No one knows what became of it after that. Mary Griffin died in 1958, aged 83. She had always hoped that she'd be able to recover the body of her husband, and had been deeply upset at the notion that he lay somewhere with no Christian burial. Larry was commemorated on her own headstone. Up until her death, Mary lived with her son Jack and his wife Bridie, who had set up a garage in Kilmac Thomas. Larry Griffin's family continues to live in the area to this day, knowing that their grandfather, or great-grandfather, is somewhere out there in the landscape around them. A local woman is quoted as having said at the time, It's no crime for a man to die, if only they treated him as they should. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Marge Tomney, Anne O'Donovan, Gemma Morris, Ellie Collum, Margaret McQuillian, Leandra Tilly, and Kate McMillian. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. 
it's hugely important to be able to keep mens rea going and along with the warm fuzzies of helping out you get ad free and bonus episodes and nifty merch so if you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash mens thanks also to our sponsors for this week check out best fiends my favorite mobile puzzle game and also Raycon Earbuds, who have upped my podcast listening game. And finally, thanks to BetterHelp, helping me to keep even keeled in these unprecedented times. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the notes for this episode and check them all out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winisha Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or at our website, www.menswearyapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. 